Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my effervescent co-host Teos Avadia. Hey, Teos. Hey, Sean. How are you doing today, my friend? I am doing. There was a weekend. Time has changed. We are time travelers, not of our own volition, but it has been forced upon us. Yeah. Uh, I have fallen back and I am ready to go. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, I have fallen. I have gotten up. And uh, and this weekend, I got a lot done. Uh, I also did a lot of trying to check out other social media options. And that was, uh, well, it took me back to the early days of Twitter, really. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, just so you know, the show is going to stay on Twitter for now. Uh, although we are, as Teo said, checking out alternatives in case the little blue bird catches fire <laughs> and flames out. But yeah, and we also had big news last week, and and continuing news of going indie. Uh, last week was our first independent show, and we could not be happier with the support we've received. Uh, both in terms of people who have joined our, our new Patreon, as well as people who have just said that they really enjoy the show and that they're looking forward to continuing listening and watching us. So thank you all for all the support that we've received. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, so uh, let's jump right in to talking with our listeners out there with our tweet bag and Patreon missives. Um, our first comes from Twitter, and it's George PR at Unordinary Tales. George PR asks, "Do y'all play other RPGs besides Five E D and D? If so, what games and what do you think D and D does well?" So, yes, I can speak for myself by saying I do play other role playing games. I don't play as many as I'd like to, and I don't play them as often as I'd like to. But I do. How about you, Teos? Yeah, I love playing other games uh, other than 5e. Um, in fact, I miss doing it as much as I have at some points in my life. I used to be in a group in Pennsylvania where every time we met, we would play a different game. And that was amazing for me to just learn the breadth of what is offered out there and understand how vastly different mechanics can be between games and how similar um, so yeah, I miss that. Uh, but but you know, like at Gamehole Con, I, I played some Shadow and I played some other games. So so yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of other things. Um, what what do I think D and D does well? I think D and D is very simple and rewarding compared to many of the more complex games. So so like and if you take like a Shadow Run or, or other games that try to be beefy, Eclipse Phase, things like that, D and D handles it really well. Its complexity is sort of like outer layers of the inner core, rather than you having to learn a lot of different things. Um, and so it tends to be pretty easy to do what you want to do. And the D20 carries a lot of weight, so so it's pretty simple for, for players to understand, pretty easy for them to say, I want to try a thing, and then the D20 reflects that without really having to link it to a lot of subsystems. I think D&D does that pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, I think... D&D &D 5e has that happy medium 
as, as you said, Teos, between a game that is very, very complicated and detailed and has a lot of latency between saying what you're going to do and getting to the point. Latency, uh, the, the latency in D&D can be cut to a minimum by just, what do you want to do? Okay, roll a d20. We'll add those numbers quickly, and we'll get to the resolution and to the story that yeah. flows from that. But it can also be made very complicated uh, for people that like that. It can be made a very tactical game that gets down into the nitty-gritty of adding different numbers and using tactics to to uh, influence the, the, the mechanics and then therefore influence the narrative. So it can be adjusted. There are many dials that can be turned quite easily for an experienced game master who can who can do that. So I think that's where 5e has its strengths. Yeah. Um, and then other games you can then get into, well, we want to go more tactical. So is there a more tactical game that doesn't have some of the drawbacks that D&D has when it's made tactical or more free-flowing story will move in that direction and there are games that do that better. Um, and that's sort of what I've been doing with games recently. It's not just role-playing games, but even with board games and light role-playing games. And to see where that line between a mechanical game and a storytelling game can be blurred and experiment with the latency and with the storytelling flow of those. So, like, I've been playing The Initiative by Unexpected Games, mm -hmm. which is sort of a board game, puzzle game, and ongoing story that you can play in about 20 minutes to 30 minutes. Uh, so it's a board game, not quite a role-playing game, but you can get that sort of story element. Uh, Alice is Missing from Spencer Stark. Mm. You know, it's that great, the game itself played via text message, right, tells a story without having to roll up a character and get into that sort of thing. Alone Among the Stars is a solo um, role-playing game journal game where you can roll some dice, draw a card, and then let your creativity flow out of that by yourself in a journal. So, you know, all of these games have these lessons that you can learn and ways that you can incorporate them if you want to either make your own game or take 5e and go off in a different direction with it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's really fascinating to see also how games advance. Like I was thinking about uh, at GameholeCon, I played Shadowrun and I played Aliens or Alien, the role playing game. And they both have this sort of like I roll to attack, you roll to sort of soak or deny the damage. And one of the problems of that is that you can end up with a situation where you did a lot of rolling and it all felt sort of exciting. But at the end of it, nothing happened. And that can happen several rounds yep. in a row. Right. And Alien tackles that a little differently in that it, it um, your roles matter because you're making these roles that have the possibility of adding stress. And stress gives you more dice, which gives you more chances to have the thing you want, but also to then trigger things that the DM wants, which are going to be horrible and terrible for you. And that mix is really quite fascinating. So it's neat how to look at that game and see, wow, they kind of put this really kind of indie storytelling piece that is in the normal steps in a more complex, dense game. And that's really fascinating how that works right. out. Yeah. Yep. And what you might find if you do play a lot of games is you like a game to play as a one-shot or you like a game that maybe once a month or once every two months or three months that it's fun to play this game. But if you played it every week 
or multiple times a week, it would get tedious um, yeah. because of all of the all of the latency that's involved in it. So, you know, it's it's good to play, especially like with a group, if you have your normal home group, to try a different game with them every once in a while, just to appreciate something different, but also appreciate what you already have. Right. Like I love running like a one shot of um, Time Watch, right? That can be a really absurd, mm -hmm. fun game where you're zipping around time and undoing things. And some of the adventures are just hilarious, right? It's Bill and Ted type stuff. And it can be serious, right? But but a lot of the best ones for me are those that are really sort of humorous and, and absurd. And you're doing funny things to resolve it. And that just changes up the tenor of, of a home group. And then you can go back to whatever you're doing, right? Um and for me, same dipping into horror. Like I don't really like deep horror as an overall kind of thing. So going into that for a bit is a really fun change to me. And then I can go back to my typical D and D campaign. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. So we have one other, uh, comment that we got via email. It was actually quite an in-depth comment from Alex Kammer. Uh, Alex is the person behind Gamehole Con and behind Gamehole Publishing. And he wanted to talk about what we talked about when we recorded our live podcast at GameholeCon, um, specifically talking about running a fulfilling campaign. And why this is important, I think, is because Alex and his group have been playing at the Gamehole for over 20 years with, <laughs> wow. with the same group. Yeah, and like I think back, 20 years is when I got back into D&D &D with 3rd Edition, so... You know, my whole experience as a role-playing game designer and freelancer has been in this time where Alex has been running this game with his group at, at, at the game hall. It's incredible. And so do you want to touch on some of the things he talked about, Deus? Yeah, he shares how he has seven total members, so six potential players at any one time. And that type you know, touches on what Mike Shea had, had recommended of having more players than you have to have so someone can cancel and you're fine. So Alex and his group, they'll send out a Google survey every six weeks where everybody can indicate what nights they can play. And then they plan ahead for that. And they usually have five players, sometimes four. So that's that whole idea, right? You have seven total players, but you end up with five or four. And therefore, you can play and you don't have to cancel. And there have only been a few times when they've not had enough positive responses in a given week to play. And that usually involves holiday travel and obvious times like that. Um, his group also switches GMs. They have th at least three people who are glad to jump in and, and, and DM. So that lessens the load and provides breaks for that main GM. Um, and then they do, <laughs> I enjoyed this, he, he talks about their level of maturity and says that they have a recap after every gaming session, which they lovingly call a recrap. And so they, mm -hmm. they summarize in their recap. He says, in it, we not only summarize the events, but we highlight good plays and usually award a POD to satisfy, satisfy your sports requirement. Uh, the recap is great. Or recap is great as it saves time for both the DM and players before the next session as everyone can reread it right before we game and everyone's ready to go. Also, it often fosters discussion about the last game in the days that follow the actual game itself. And he also and looked we at also talked about yeah right right and and so he talked about metagaming and uh he his group works to keep focus on the action so when it's someone's turn they focus on the action at hand and don't get overly involved in discussing tactics um their their line is this fight actually is happening right now what is your action 
<laughs> so you don't have the time. Your character does not have the time to sit and discuss where everyone is standing or what would be the best spell to cast at this moment. Just do the thing, yeah. which which I really like. I think is uh, it's good in keeping the, the action flowing. Yeah, that's a smart move. Yep. Yeah, thanks, Alex. So, Thank you, George. Yep. And uh, if you would like to ask a question, we will tell you at the end of the show how you can do that. But let's get into our news and commentary section. Uh, big, well, not quite huge news on the D&D movie, but we'll say about you know 28 days worth of news <laughs> is that the D&D movie is being pushed back in the release schedule by those 28 days. It was supposed to be released on March 3rd, and now it will be released on March 31st. So what's being released in its place? The movie Scream 6. Yes, there are six. Six. Six, apparently. Uh, Six Scream movies, and so we will be seeing the sixth Scream movie on March 3rd, and the D&D movie pushed back to March 31st. I have to wait even longer. That is painful. And you know what this means, yep. right? And so we what's can... what's the big joke? Yeah. <laughs> they had to cancel game night and reschedule it, right? I mean, that's the, the clear joke that comes from this uh, change. Yeah. You should have listened to Alex Sorry, Cameron. we all can't get together that day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, they, they should have made five different movies and therefore uh, you know, shown a different one each each week. I like that. So from the D&D movie to the original Forgotten Realms map, Ben Riggs, who was the author of Slaying the Dragon, A Secret History of Dungeons and Dragons, and also who appeared on our show Mm -hmm. a few months ago, went to the game hall and looked at the original map of the Forgotten Realms. And then he interviewed people who were involved with that map to hear the story behind it. And we have a link in our show notes to the blog post where Ben talks about the map and and its history. And it's super, super fascinating, both as a fan of the game and as a game designer, to see, you know, where this map started in terms of what it what it is as a game and how it sort of changed, like when the Munche Isles were added to the map. They just took the little map of the Munche Isles and taped it over the spot in the ocean where uh, it was supposed to be, covering the other things that uh, had been originally there. Yeah, I, thought I thought that, that was, was fantastic. Hilarious. And, and just the, the whole history of it, where it was in his cubicle when, when Jeff Grubb leaves TSR, and then this woman knows that, you know, wait, this is important. It, it, I should really save this because... You know, this is probably the only thing that records this type of change and and how all this took place. And so smartly ends up being uh, protected and and kept. And then uh, at a time when a lot of things were being just thrown out due to lack of storage space. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so then Alex Cameron ends up buying and and he, you know, you and I both seen it at the game hall. Um, It's fascinating to look at that and all the handwriting and, and and then uh, he went through all this process to preserve it because it's complicated. It's not just paper. It's paper with like tape over it. And so you have to neutralize the acids and problems with the glue and things. So he went through quite the process to protect this. It'll last uh, as long as it can. Yep. It is called the Martin map because it was Susan Martin who mm-hmm. saved it from being 
uh, just junked when right. TSR was purchased and and everyone moved to uh, to Seattle to become part of Wizards of the Coast. So if you're into D and D history, uh, Ben's book is great, obviously, but you know his blog articles that touch on these smaller things in in the history of D and D are are great read. So you should check that out. Thank you, Susan. <laughs> Checking out Roll Twenty. Their year in review is up on their blog at roll20.net, but they talk about things that they did and did not do in 2020. Teos, what were some of the highlights for you? Yeah, so the big one is is Roll20 and One Bookshelf becoming one company with basically Roll20 buying One Bookshelf. Um, We get an overview of that, but we're also told, which I thought was interesting, that we're gonna hear more ways the two are working together in early 2023. And that right there was for me like, oh, Okay, I'm ready. Tell me more. Mm-hmm. Um, they also review the features they've added, 50% loader, faster load times, 50% of games will load in under four seconds, um, dark mode, one-way and transparent barriers, token control, PDFs on the VTT, mobile app updates, and more. All of that, to me, what it really says is this is a company that, unlike in previous years where they were kind of like, hey, plodding along, just doing stuff, this is a company that sees... We have competitors. We have to be in the space protecting it and, and engaging people, right? There are other VTTs. There are D&D Beyonds and Wizards of the Coasts to, to kind of outmaneuver, right? You've got to hustle. And this is a company that's hustling, which is great for anybody who uses the platform. <laughs> um, so they talked yeah. about future updates. You were going to say something to that? No, I I, I was going to say... Going back to this whole idea of getting your gaming group together, we finally come to the realization, I think, in our group that mm. while we do not enjoy playing via VTTs and not in person, at some points we're going to have to if, we have, if we're going to have a campaign that succeeds. Uh, we can't meet even every other week. So uh, I've, I've been digging back into Roll20 and trying to te- reteach myself how to use it. So all of this information is coming becoming valuable and i think the the recovery from the pandemic if if we are actually in a recovery or not is a whole other question (laughs) but this sort of this is what we learned about gaming during the pandemic and some of those lessons we're going to continue to linger in our gaming lives uh, despite people trying to return back to normal yeah yeah no for sure i i feel the same thing as well where where I think getting my group to meet in person is a little bit harder than getting them to play online. And so playing online is the clear way to go, right? It's the path to victory. And so all of these improvements matter to me. And, and they've got future improvements as well that they're promising. So, so I'm, I'm excited to see what, they, what 2023 brings as well. So I always appreciate yep. their reviews. For sure. Uh, Johnny Stanton has become the first NFL player to post something on the DMs Guild. What, you may ask? Who's Johnny Stanton? Well, he's been featured in Sports Illustrated and recently on an ESPN News segment for playing uh, D&D with other NFL players. So he was a fullback for the Cleveland Browns Mm -hmm. who got some very high-profile players uh, to to join his D&D game. 
And so that has been a topic of conversation in both football and gaming uh, spheres. And what did he put up on the DMs Guild? He released a subclass for Paladins called the Oath of the Executioner. The Oath of the Executioner is taken up by those dedicated to justice of the highest order. Practiced in making death a quick, painless experience, the Executioner will not hesitate to make the decisive blow on their target. Uh, so, you know, it's celebrities playing D&D is always a big thing. And so the, the sports... The sports fanatics who, you know, there is some overlap between sports fanatics and gaming fanatics. So uh, it's good to have another celebrity, especially in that arena, step up. Uh, What else has been news about Johnny Stanton? So he launched a new website where he says professional athlete Dungeons and Dragons nerd, which I thought was awesome. And it has a special Johnny Stanton set of dice that are all kind of gold with blue and has his, his... uh, insignia on it, T-shirts, um, and then he has contact information for collaborations. So you know, maybe that's the way you want to go. Uh, I think he's already learning about how hard it is to be to make a successful product on the DMs Guild. Um, his product is not copper yet, but I hope it will be. Uh, I, you know, I'm pulling right. for him. I think this is great. I hope more people who are in you know non-traditional walks of life, right can embrace that nerd um, and be a part of D&D and yeah. RPG communities. So, so I'm all for it. But, but it's easy. Yeah. It's not I mean, easy, right? I, it's, it's doesn't kind of, yeah. especially I think when, you, when your audience is a certain type of audience, bringing them to this new audience or gaining a new audience in this space can be challenging. So. Yeah, it's different to get attention in the, in the realm than it is to sell products in the realm it's definitely a, a thing but yeah as i wear D apparel around town and i live in a pretty small town i am constantly running into people who are like oh i love D and i'll be like yeah me too you know i play a lot and i i make games and stuff and they're like really oh i wish i could do that i i would quit my job right now to become a game designer wow. and i'm like yes a lot of a lot of people would uh, and you know, I hope that that you are able to do so as well. That's that's and really I, fascinating. Um, yeah, yeah. I I've not heard a lot of that, but but then I'm always surprised. Like you know, we just had a uh, uh, a restaurant in town that got bought out by a, a new group that is launching a, a tavern that is all RPG mm-hmm. themed, and they are kickstarting their uh, adventures that they're going to run at the tavern, and 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 they're having to explain, you know, no, if if you don't play rpgs you can still be a part of this you know, having to speak right. explain to the rest of the crowd right it's funny yeah so we go from the nfl to publishing advice from sandy pug games sandy pug games has launched this site called the sandy pug school which collects game design and publishing advice uh, current articles include editing uh, different types of editing and when to use them for your tabletop role-playing game projects. Um, being a leader without being a boss, which I was like, okay, I can see that. Um, and four things everyone does on Kickstarter that you're afraid of doing. So I haven't seen this site yet, Teos. What yeah. do you think? It's pretty neat. Um, the, the the being a leader without a boss was the one that first caught my eye because it, it, it does speak to this situation that happen, happens, especially in, in collaborations or where you bring in freelancers where you're you're kind of the boss, but not their boss, like in a traditional sense. Right. And so what does that mean 
how do you sort of lay down what needs to happen and, and motivate and coordinate, but you're not that boss figure that might be traditional where people just blindly follow what you say because otherwise you're fired, right? And so, mm -hmm. so it, it is an interesting uh, where, where it's more about advocacy and um, encouraging and generating ideas and things like that. And so I think that was, that was a pretty neat article. Okay. And you can find that at sandypug.school. One of our favorite game designers has some new products out. Uh, James Intracasso has released for the Zweihander role-playing game, Eternal Night of Lockwood, a 386-page adventure for the Zweihander RPG. And as Teos waves his copy of this book around, um, he can tell you that he had the pleasure of looking over this adventure. And what did you see when you did this look over? Uh, it's amazing. First of all, it's, it's enormous. Uh, part of that is that Zweihander uses a, a larger typeface. So so if you're used yeah. to, say, like D&D &D Adventures or a lot of other RPGs that have that kind of small type that people with bad eyesight complain about, this does not have that problem. And so it's bigger and thicker. Uh, and it's actually kind of nice because you, you can just kind of take in a thing at a time. And it, it's I like how it's spaced out. The layout is great. It's beautiful book, beautiful cover. Uh, the I love the map style inside. Um, but all of it is a really neat adventure that, that's campaign length where you are uh, finding that this the land is suddenly plunged into darkness, eternal darkness that never goes away and the why of it. And there are really great creepy aspects to it. Things like, um, you know, the mine that's almost out of copper and and what's going on in the mine. And then you go to other areas and they have equally sort of creepy pieces that just before you even get there, you as a player would be kind of like, oh, this is exciting and a little horrifying. And uh, yeah, it's great. So even if you you don't play Zweihunter, I would check this out because it is a, a really neat concept and very easy to, to you know run with some other system if you wanted to. But yeah, excellent, excellent job by James and Tricasso. I know he worked on it for a very long time too. It's cool. Mm-hmm. And I think we talked about this before, but since it's sort of through the same publisher, I wanted mm -hmm. to mention To Be or Not to Be a Villain, which James wrote with Rudy Basso. And it's the take on the role of a lifetime as one of nine nobles in this tabletop role-playing game that retells Hamlet. Uh, players cooperate and plot against one another for the throne of Denmark. And I know that works both with the Zweihander role-playing game and with 5e D&D. &D. And I have pre-ordered it, but it doesn't come out until March, I think. So I'm waiting patiently to see what James <laughs> and Rudy did with that. Yeah, and I, as, as I said on the show, I play-tested that, so I know it's really, really awesome. Um, but I am also yep. excited to get that into my hands. Um, maybe also uh, worth mentioning that Into the Motherlands um, was you know, a, very, a huge, successful Kickstarter and it um, was recently said that the publisher for that will be the, the same publisher that does Zweihander, um, which is super cool. So, so we see you know a number of ways that that uh, that they're involved in the space, and that's pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at the SimonandSchuster.com website to order some of these you know published books. Mm -hmm. So that's not a small publishing company that is getting into the role playing games. Field. Yeah, and that's all through Andrews McNeil Publishing, which is the the Zweihander mm -hmm. publisher that's also doing Into the Motherlands. 
Um, but they they work through their own sort of distribution with Simon and Schuster, which is pretty sweet. So that that really, yeah, uh, yeah, really makes a big difference for them. Our main topic this week, since you have been waiting so patiently, is Five E Revisited. We have talked about so many things. We've talked about Chapter One. We've talked about Chapter Two. We've talked about Chapter Three. And we've talked about chapter four. Guess what comes next, Teos? 19. No? Close. You're only off by 14. We are going to talk <laughs> about chapter five, which covers equipment. And the first thing I thought when I saw that equipment came up next in our talk was, equipment? Who cares? Who even mm. bothers with equipment? It's not important in, in the game. That was just my, you know, my quick yeah. origin, you know, my thought, the first thing that came to mind. And then I was like, oh, oh, slow down there, Slappy. Let's really take a look at this and and think. And, and as the more I thought about it, I realized how important it is, not just for game design, but for really it gets to the heart of what a role playing game is and can be or doesn't want to be, depending <laughs> on your your take on on you yeah. know role playing games. So, what are some of your initial thoughts on this Chapter 5 equipment topic? Yes, well, Slappy, I, um, <laughs> I, I had a very similar initial thought. And, and, and then I immediately, like, kind of like you, I go like, ah, and I recoil in pain because I think back on when I started playing. And equipment was like the candy store, right? Like... It was a dream, and I remember making a character and thinking, like, oh, I don't know that I have enough, you know, silver to buy the mirror and the, you know, bullseye lantern. Oh, no, that's too unaffordable, you know, but just going through those choices, and it just felt like being a kid at a toy store or at a candy mm -hmm. store. And, and that causes me to reflect on 5th edition, where its equipment has become so meaningless, and, and, I, and I don't want it to be that way. But I also, I think, now know enough about design to see why we are where we are. And so it's all very fascinating, right? And, and games handle it super differently. There's so many games where, especially games with guns, right? There are like 40 types of guns and they all matter. And someone has sat down with a spreadsheet and calibrated every single, <laughs> calibrated every single game, mm -hmm. every single gun to be slightly different in a different way so that it matters, right? Right. And that's sort of where we are with equipment now in in D and D. It's are the differences between the the equipment that you can get so important, especially when you talk about weapons and, and armor, that they need to be there or not. But if we we step all the way back and you say, what's the point of equipment? We have to look at it through these couple of lenses where we should be looking at all stuff role playing game related, which is. For role-playing game is a machine, a narrative engine, but also a mechanical game, then what does equipment do for the storytelling part of the game, for the game mechanical part of the game, and can equipment elegantly meld those two aspects together to make them work together the way we like our games to, mm -hmm. to do? So we're not turning off the story part of our brain to play it, and then turning off the, the game and turning back the, the story part back on to play that part of the game. We want them to work together. Uh, so let's see if they do and let's see if they can or cannot. So what, what does equipment add to play? 
uh, how is wealth important? How yeah. is lifestyle important? Because currency is a kind of equipment. Uh, what, what, are, what are some of your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I always think about how, and again, to me, it's the contrast between 5e and other editions where uh, people would often say, who has rope? And in 5e, the answer is everybody. Everybody mm -hmm. chooses a pack. That pack has rope in it. <laughs> and so everybody right. has rope. And, it, and it's inconsequential. And that was one of the common checkpoints where you tag into equipment. Um, but even beyond that, you know, like whether you have the climber's kit or not, almost never comes up because it just becomes this. It's so taken care of that it's almost mm -hmm. not even worth looking at in your sheet. And that's one of those things that happens, right, incentive-wise. If you put the incentive, of, if you put a player's focus on here's gold, spend it, then they have an incentive to care about what they chose to buy and give it a reason and an idea. When you just give someone a pack, they don't care about it in the same way, and they're unlikely to do that much with it. And I think we see that in 5th edition. So it, so it adds very little to play because the assumption is you're going to be fine. And, and more than ever, 5th edition just assumes anything in an adventure can be handled by any character regardless of their loadout, gear, equipment, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Which is kind of fascinating. Right. Yeah, there, there isn't... The game doesn't want there to be a scenario where, oh, you don't have a grappling hook, therefore you cannot complete this adventure as as it has been created by the dungeon master or by the third party publisher or by Wizards of the Coast. Mm -hmm. But they also want a game where if you are someone who wants to spend every copper piece on equipment and think it through and try to maybe find some things that can give you an advantage not just okay now we can continue because i have this but we are going to win specifically because i do have this <laughs> they want that you know they want to have all those knobs as i said earlier uh able to to be turned so that's why it's important and i think of other games where mm. there's like a gearing up section and how it has gone so great in some of them and so poorly in others. Um, yeah, like, that I, I thought it, it's worth mentioning. So when I, the first thing, I've played Spycraft exactly once. And it was at a convention, and we had three hours, basically, to, to finish a four-hour adventure. Mm -hmm. And I'd never played, so the first you know 20 minutes of it are, this is what your character is, this is what they can do. And now we're going to go through this thing, you know, this gearing up section. We know what our mission is, so we're going to talk about what we need. And basically two hours of the, of the two and a half hours we had left, we were debating and talking about what gear we could or couldn't take. And that included vehicles, and that included a bunch of stuff. And yeah. if, that, if it had been 20 minutes of that, I would have been all over it. But two hours of it, it just dragged on and on and on. And in the end, it didn't really make that much of a difference in trying to complete this mission that it, that it was worth. Um, so I was like, if every adventure of Spycraft is like this, I, I don't want it. Right. And, and I can add real fast, having played a lot of Spycraft yeah. and worked with the designers, including on playtests of the someday Spycraft 3 that they will someday launch. Um, they, they're aware of this issue. 
uh, and it varies by adventure. In some adventures, it really, really matters. Uh, and it's really fun, right? Like having the cigarette case that actually has the ability to shoot a bullet out of it or a recording device or a um, record someone's face and make a mask out of it device. Like these things do super matter in some scenarios, but not in others. And they always take too long. And so one of the things they've often mm -hmm. looked at is how do you reduce that time? Um, yeah. But but it shows that, I mean, I think the reason it's there, right, is because we do know that in the fiction of the game, of the spy genre, that loadout that you choose for mission specific is really cool and really neat. The idea that, you know, I'm going to climb up a sheer cliff to attack a castle or I'm going to impersonate someone at a cocktail party. Like those are all very different ideas and we want fun gear to shine and, and enable play. Now, another gearing up session that I played was in a paranoia game. Mm. And this worked beautifully for a few a few reasons one we didn't get to choose what our gear was we were given gear and the gear that we were given because it's a comedic sort of game was obviously going to malfunction <laughs> but we were forced to use it because part of our mission is to test this new gear <laughs> so there there was this knowledge there was this foreknowledge there was they teed it up beautifully of all right you need to use this thing that can cut through anything <laughs> uh it can cut through literally anything um including the package that it's in if if you jostle it too much oh wow right so you so you know that at some point there's going to be the room is going to shake, there's going to be jostling, and you are now going to have to deal with the fallout of this <laughs> basically piece of dental floss, but it can cut through the uh -huh. core of the earth uh, if it if it gets out of its little package, <laughs> which of course it will. Yeah, yeah. So right, so that sort of gearing up mm -hmm. had a purpose uh, in the game that didn't take a lot of time yeah. but had a lot of resonance uh in the tone of the game as well as in the mm -hmm. actual playing of the game gamma world does that well as well uh where where yep. you would get sort of these cards with equipment and you'd even find you know junk that you're salvaging and mm -hmm. stuff and and you end up using it in really fun clever ways so yeah sure yeah all right so let's dig through this equipment section going uh heading by heading and the first heading is starting equipment. So currently in 5e, starting equipment is provided through two sources. And Teos, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's two sources, right? There's class and there's your background. Yep. Mm -hmm. And you do get gold as part of that starting equipment. So if your game master allows it, you may buy something with that gold that, that you receive as part of your uh, class or background. So far, so good? Yep. And, and, and usually you can cash out so you can choose to not have the starting equipment and just get gold. Or you when you get to your mm -hmm. background phase, you get the background equipment plus a little bit of gold. Right. So the question that comes to mind right away is, is the game better or worse if new characters need to buy equipment rather than just receiving it as part of some other package that they do during character creation? I mean, you know how I feel. I, I feel like these packages take away from the game, and 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 they 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 put it, it it causes it to fade away and lose importance. The packs are all too similar because they're trying to not be a bad pack, right? I think that's the problem. Is is when you when you make 
a pack for adventurers, you can't have the priest be just stuff to be priestly. It has to be for adventuring too. Otherwise, they're like, oh, I don't want that. Everybody has rope. Now, if my question changes to, is the game better or worse if new players need to buy equipment rather mm. than just receive it? Does that change your answer? Yeah, I mean, I see what you're getting at. Sure. It's not that I want to bog down people with this, but I will say that some of it depends how 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 onerous is character creation to begin with at level one, right? You and I, in, in previous versions of this, had advocated for a very, very simple piece. And I think that if there were... If you think of like the AD&D book, all the equipment was on like one page. It was really easy to scan it and make some choices. Plus, you couldn't afford most of it anyway. And then you were done, but you had some creative, neat ideas as to what you might do with these things. I think that's possible, right? But I think the game now wants to give you several pages of equipment. And then, yes, that is a lot to do. But I, I guess maybe what it is is that I don't want the packages to be what they are currently, right? To be so complete that we never need equipment ever, ever again in our character lives and so complete that they are all interchangeable and it doesn't matter which one you chose, right? Did you choose choose the diplomats pack? Ooh, you know, like, who cares? (laughs) Okay, so so are you talking about the packs or the packages that you are given by choosing a class or, or a well yeah i guess i'm talking more about the packs so, and to differentiate right usually it, w- what it means for a class is you sort of get a a series of bullet points that you go through and so you say uh either a short sword or a simple weapon either a you know leather armor or a shield and whatever you know and th- that kind of choice right there's sort of these little choices that you get to make through and then you get a pack and the pack has sort of your adventuring gear, your your random mm-hmm. stuff like rope and yeah, whatever it is, okay. caltrops and oil. So, so so you're 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 okay with the packages. I'm a fighter and a noble, so therefore I get the fighter stuff, the noble stuff. Yes. You you don't like the adventurer's pack that contains all of the stuff that people yeah. can overlook. Yeah, probably. Okay. I, th- I think that the, I mean, I, I can, I can, <laughs> being the opinionated person I am, I can take any one of those little bits and, and, and want to file it away. But as a general concept, I think it, that's fine. To me, the packs just intersect too much. You know, like I've said, I, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I agree with you to a point. Um, I. I am okay playing a game where equipment matters and every copper piece matters and encumbrance matters. Um, If that is the depth and the level that the players enjoy playing at. So I am also fine saying, yeah. Because another thing we could do, right? Let's say that we have been empowered with creating the the new edition of Dungeons & Dragons. And we're looking at this fifth edition 2014 book and we're saying, how do you want to redo this? Right. Because another possibility is to say, you have the gear you need. You don't need to look at it. Right? And a lot of role playing games do that. They just, you have gear. We're not going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a fighter. You have fighter stuff. Whatever you need, it's, that's why you have skills, right? Make a skill check. You have the equipment you need for that skill check. Should it just be that? 
And I'm okay with that. I'm okay if that's the game you want to play, that you you totally have everything you need, and you even have weird things if that's what the game calls for. So I'm going to press you uh, further, oh, though. Oh, you need you, a... If you, Sean, yeah. are making the new 5e, which path do you push for and why? Uh, if me, if me as just Sean, who wants to create a cool game, mm-hmm. I go with the very, much less equipment mm-hmm. route. I I want the game to be picked up and played quickly, and I want people to get to the joy of the game without having to decide whether they want to read over all this equipment. Sean, the person who has to sell things in order <laughs> to make a living. I am going to put out 27 books of equipment that that the most ardent copper pinching players who love to customize right down to the yeah. the very, you know, bones of their fingers will will want to buy. Because yeah, that's, that's the business I'm in. Yeah, yeah, no, and and I and suspect the audience that- is wide. I think that I would begin trying to make equipment matter, and I think I would probably end up giving up and say it should be, if I wasn't approaching from the business standpoint, I think I would look at, okay, I want this game to have equipment. I want the silver mirror to matter. I want the belladonna sprig to matter. And then I would probably end up going, this is a design waste of time. Let's just get rid of equipment uh, for 90% of it. And that's exactly right. That is exactly right. What you're saying is once you decide to get that to that granular level of does it matter if my mirror is silver or gold, mm-hmm. you have to put elsewhere in your game things that draw up on that. Or because even if, if you, you have don't, a mirror, right? Right. Well, yeah, that's what I mean, right? If you have a mirror or not. Mm-hmm. And that gets to... The people who say, I have a shield, obviously, if I have a shield, I have a mirror because it will reflect. Well, will it? And if you make mirrors important in your mm-hmm. game, then you need to say your armor and your shield do not reflect <laughs> yeah. images unless it specifically says it in the the armor or shield that you have. Yeah, because someone's going to say, maybe I now saw your the magic- original Clash of the Titans. I don't exactly. need a mirror. I'll use my shield. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, what sort of game and what sort of player and what sort of game master are you writing this this edition for, this game yeah. for? Because the the worst thing you can do is create all of these things and then not have them make any difference in the actual game play or story that that you're that you've built your game to support. And the thing so, is these days, right, when yeah. we're writing an adventure, if the idea is that you can turn the Medusa to stone, there is something reflective in the room, right? Like we mm-hmm. put a thing there anyway, right? Because that's the engagement we're going for, and and so it, it is true that that these days it's sort of yeah, and, and I think there's so much more information too that p- people are just you, you're not expecting sort of wild random ideas. The wild random ideas are are now all pretty well known and established. Mm-hmm. Right. The right. oh yeah, reflect the Medusa's gaze back upon herself. That's already established. So so everybody knows that that's a thing you can try to do. And yeah, 
Yeah. Mm. I mean, you and I played Living Greyhawk and we loved Living Greyhawk yeah. and we wrote for Living Greyhawk and we administered Living Greyhawk. What was the main, when, it, when Living Greyhawk first started, what was the main criticism of it? You know, other than I have to travel to a place. What what was its nickname? Do you remember the nickname for Living Greyhawk? Living? Uh, well, there was the whole thing about taking every single thing you could and selling it. Yeah, right. It was called Living Accounting. Oh, yeah, there was that, yeah. yes. Right. It was called living accounting because you had to keep track of every single thing and every bolt and every coin. And, and what I was thinking was people, we would say we greyhawk the bodies, right? Which right, is the exactly. we take every sellable thing off of these yep. bodies, DM. Whatever we think has worth, yep. we are taking it, right? We just went through the hideout of the of the thieves guild. It's a house. Uh, how many nails are in the floor? Mm-hmm. Because if we can come up with 10,000 nails, that's 10 gold pieces. And we had to keep track of every coin. And yeah. there were sheets and sheets that that you filled out, right? Living accounting. And people derided that. But there were people who loved that. Well, and in, in, in 3rd edition, there were a number of reasons why this mattered. Um, there were, in the organized play campaign, there were things that you could use your gold on that were campaign specific, but there was also, there were a number of costs that were incurred, uh, especially when you upgraded equipment, right? And, and spellcasters dealt with this like crazy. They had the ability to, uh, through a long process, create magic items, which required a ton of gold. And mm-hmm. so having access to that was a really big deal. Now in fifth edition, the only thing that I ever hear characters doing with gold at, at a sort of smaller, medium level is buying endless numbers of potions of healing unless their DM goes, no. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and that segues perfectly into the next next section mm-hmm. of Chapter 5, which is wealth. Yeah. Right? It's a coinage with selling treasure. And as you said, you know, apart from these small things like spell books or maybe consumable spell components... What is the need for wealth in 5e? Uh, and, and, did you, you know, buy again, lots of potions of healing? Yeah, I feel like when we first started playing, buying an ale was something I thought about the way I did when I bought an ale coming out of college. Do I really want an ale? I should probably save this. Yeah. And I feel like now you can play at any level and the characters are like, I buy everybody a round of ale. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, like never is no one's ever doing any accounting uh, which is good on one right. hand right but also there is no price sensitivity there it's either completely unaffordable like it's a ship it's a galleon or it's just who cares because we have so much money right and i know that there are probably people listening going but my group does that my group keeps track of every copper and and we love that and that's okay it's not wrong to love that but you are probably not just in a minority, but you are in an extreme minority. Most people don't want to do that. And so, you know, just going by marketing numbers and what, what people want and what stops people from playing a game is this sort of inventory, deep math spreadsheet uh, thing that, that they just don't want to do. And so, you know, when we look at wealth in 5e, there's not a great need for it unless you're going to buy 
a manor house mm -hmm. unless you're going to spend it in this way that isn't really addressed deeply in the rules. Yeah. That's why we, when we did Acquisitions Incorporated, we tried to come up with ways that making your party a business would mm -hmm. then require you to not keep track of every copper piece, but use the money that you did get in interesting, fun, strange, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, story driving ways. Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. And, also, and, and yeah. that came, you know, from the very early concept. Talking to Jerry Holkins and having him say, "I want gold to matter," right? Because that mm -hmm. was his observation of fifth edition, right? Like gold should matter. And so, in the rules for Ack Inc., the, how you build up your franchise and whether it is a guild house or that you're selling things or you're you know a bunch of traders, whatever it is you use money in all these downtime activities and and to sustain what you've built your group you must continue to pay off things and see how it fares from month to month yep and with grim hollow the ghostfire gaming mm -hmm. setting um with, when we made the monster grimoire we tried to do a similar thing which is instead of just handing out magic items take the monsters that you kill the people you defeat and find ways to create magic items using those components plus money plus time plus your skill and in that way money becomes more important and you don't have to spend hours pouring over books you can just say i know that this creature's claws can be made into daggers or weapons so all right we have somebody who can do it we have the time and oh look we have the gold to do that so here we go and we can spend 20 minutes deciding what to make rather than four hours, you know, adjudicating rules to see if we can make it. So I like that. Um, one of the things that, that's really interesting to me in fifth edition is, and this comes to the next sections that are coming up, armor and shields and weapons. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I feel like fifth edition particular takes us to a point where whatever i start with i could really reach level 20 in it i, I want to magic it but that the choice is so sort of obvious for my class and even for range of classes that i'm going to pick a thing and i'm probably wearing that type for the end and same thing with weapon whatever i choose which boy does the game want it to be a long sword or great sword i'm going to be doing that till the end of time what do you think of that mm -hmm. yeah i I think this goes into a larger game design discussion that we could have, you know, about optimal choices, about game balance, about all of those things, um, and whether it's better to simplify it down to martial weapons do this amount of damage, simple weapons do this amount of damage. So if you gain a proficiency, you will do a tiny bit more damage than someone who doesn't have you know, martial proficiency with weapons. Um, was Is that the direction you're, you're headed in with that? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, any of it, any direction is valid. It's it just, it's it's fascinating to me to see, I, th I think when I looked at the books the first time, I was like, hey, this is great. You know, like like if I look at the armor right now and I'm looking at it and I'm going, hey, they're all slightly different, right? Hide is 12 plus dex modifier, chain shirt, 13 plus dex, scale, 14 plus dex, but disadvantage on stealth. You know, and so on. And so there are all yeah. these little bits and there's some price differences. So, you know, I can't really afford a breastplate to begin with in the game. But right. 
as I played fifth edition, I find that, well, there are just some real obvious choices. And, and with the exception of, say, like, plate, half plate, breastplate, whatever I want, I'm going to have, and I don't need to change. And, and that seems a little boring to me. Yeah. Boring, but quick. Boring, <laughs> yeah. but... Boring, but let's let's ditch mechanics and let's just focus on story. Um, which again, we could say let's make a game that is quick. Mm -hmm. Let's focus on story. But if you want to get into the details, then we can we can do that. Um, right. But you know, let's talk about armor, light, heavy, medium, right? Uh, game design wise. There are different levels that 5e wants, right? You have can have a high AC, but if you have a high AC, they want you to have lower hit points or mm -hmm. lower attack bonus or lower damage output or lower ability to put special conditions onto your foes. Um, so that's why you see a uh, chainmail is the best starting equipment armor you can get as a fighter mm -hmm. or a paladin that gives you it's a 16 right right i think yep. and you can't get a dex bonus with that so yeah, if you have 13 a, if you're a fighter paladin have to have a strength of 13 you have your chain mail you can add a shield to get a plus two so at first level your your armor class is going to be 18 at its highest unless you take the fighting mm -hmm. uh you know the 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 fighting thing of of armored Defensive and then you get a plus yeah. one so you can get up to 19 mm -hmm. yeah defense uh you get up to 19 yeah. but that's what the game wants you to if you are completely tanking out 19 is as high as you're going to go and then you don't get to make an offhand attack you don't get to wield a weapon two-handed so you're going to do a little bit lower damage mm -hmm. and so the game wants that balance and what do players want especially the power gaming types they want to break that balance, right? Sure. They want the 19 armor class, but also having the most hit points and also <laughs> having the highest attack bonus and also doing the most damage output yeah. and also being able to put conditions on people. And so that's what the game is constantly fighting against mm -hmm. is letting someone be the best at everything. Um, that's why you know heavy armor has that strength requirement. Because otherwise, strength becomes a dump stat. Right. And I guess what I can't really resolve for myself here is, I'm curious what you think, is this, is what 5e does a very clever, hey, you feel like equipment matters when you're choosing it, and now it can fade into the background, and that's actually really elegant and smart. Or should we just be saying, hey, a paladin has ACX? Like, is this, is this good? Is what we have really great? Or, or should this be improved upon? Again, it depends on what audience you're trying to, to reach. I think it would be great for the, the, the players at the table that really want to get into the story of the game. And, you know, the story, story of the game, I'm using finger quotes, can mean a lot of different things. Because um, some people say, you know, running up and hitting the monster until it dies is a, is a fun story. And that's that can be mm -hmm. true. But I'm talking about the, you know, getting into the social lives of your characters and showing yeah. the dramatic tension 
within the character and between the character and and you know that sort of game um is slowed down and succumbs to a lot of the mathematics that you dig into um in a game well and that's especially true i mean armor is sort of one thing there's only so much story that you're telling there um, but but weapons is one where I've often wanted to do that, where I'll say, like, I want to wield a sickle. You know, that seems cool, right? And mm-hmm. then you look at the sickle and you go, ooh, 1d4 slashing. I shouldn't wield a sickle. And you end up wearing the same, wielding the same thing that your class would <laughs> always. Right. And then you realize, well, I'm going to be attacking with my cantrip anyway. So right. this is really all completely meaningless. And, and should that be that meaningless? Exactly. And do we want a game, as Teo says, where if you're a paladin, this is your armor class. If, this is, if you're a paladin, this is the damage you do, um, either a range or a set number with a successful melee attack. And you can flavor that in any way you want. Mm. You could be a paladin wielding a sickle or a scythe. Um, and... If if your character wields it one handed, then it's a one handed sickle somehow. If your ca- character class says it's two handed, then it can be a two handed dagger that's a special stabbing dagger. I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, whatever whatever you want to say it, flavor it any way you want. Add your cool story stuff to it, and just let the mechanics be exactly what the mechanics need to be to make a game that is balanced and doesn't allow people to power game their way into what being something that the game doesn't want them to be. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's super interesting. If the martial weapons, the simple weapons, each of them have enough variety that, you know, clearly they're trying to represent the things that a game should have, right. You know, a medieval type Mm -hmm. fantasy game should have. So we see a flail and we see a mace but because of where the rules are these days, you know, clerics don't have to just carry blunt weapons. So mm-hmm. flails, nobody's using a flail. Nobody's using a morning star. Nobody's using a mace, right? But they're all here. <laughs> exactly. That exactly. You know, they, they all do, you know, either the same amount of damage or slightly less than a better weapon would, right. would give. Um, the, what's more important, I think, are the game balance things of like melee versus ranged? Mm. Should a should a melee weapon do more damage than than a ranged weapon because the game wants to reward people who are putting their characters in danger uh, to 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 be mm-hmm. you know more uh, to to balance that out? Your reward for stepping into danger is you can do more damage. Mm. Uh, and should should a game do that? Yes, yeah, no, I generally probably say no, all of the above because I think that although it's something that players don't usually understand, when you are fighting at ranged, say always hidden or always out of reach, now you are not a focus at all for any monsters, and your party, whatever the party size was, became much smaller in terms of the hit point pool. And your other yeah. characters are going to get hurt way more, right? True. So that's uh, that's its yes. own impact. Yep. And you, you'll finish and every every encounter like, going. I didn't get hit again, and everyone will look at you, and then they'll say, "Well, we need to rest." <laughs> right. 
and and, and so then we get properties of weapons versatile mm-hmm. right what does versatile mean it means it essentially does one more point of damage on average if you wield it two-handed than if you had wielded it one-handed and what mm-hmm. are you giving up by wielding it two-handed you're giving up plus two to your armor class um you're giving up the ability to have something else mm-hmm. in in that hand etc right like i saw the property heavy and i was like what exactly does heavy mean does it mean that it uses it uses strength instead of dex no that's not what it means heavy heavy means that small characters can't use it yeah that's all yeah. that's all they, so you know you want you want to use a halberd little halfling sorry (laughs) halberds can't use half disadvantage uh, without without gaining disadvantage yeah Yeah. Yeah. so right those sorts of things and Um, yet they clearly are looking at this right so like the the short sword has moved in the one dnd play test from being a martial from a uh, yeah martial weapon to being simple so it's now more accessible so you know they cared to do that which i found very fascinating right like like we want to and I almost feel like the one D and D playtest was a little bit trying to say, "Hey, why don't you start with a short sword, um, and and you'll want to upgrade a step later." So it was almost like you know you can't start with the scimitar, you can't start with with D eight, you start with a D six of damage, right? And I thought that was sort of interesting. Yeah. And it is interesting, and they they already do that with armor, right? They mm-hmm. do that with at first level, you can have chainmail. Why can't you have plate mail at first level? Well, you can't afford it, mm-hmm. right? And we don't want to deal with those armor classes that get up, up into the 20s or mid-20s mm-hmm. until you get to 5th or 6th level. And how do they do that? They do that using wealth. They do that using gold. You can't afford that plate armor until you have the 1500 gold pieces and we're assuming that based on our other rules that you can't get to that until your fourth fifth sixth level thereabouts um and they could totally do that with weapons you just have to make sure that the players and the dms understand that's why you're doing that you need to tell them rather than trying to trick them into this sort of progress progression just say it's not until this level where you get access to these greater weapons. And we do that yeah. for a reason. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So there's, it's, there's, we, you know, we have, a, we have adventuring gear, we have tools, we have trade goods, we have expenses and trinkets. Uh, we could probably spend whole shows talking about each of these things and really digging down into, you know, the mechanics of, of why they're there and what they do. Uh, there, some of them are there to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Some of them are there to give you a boost if you have the right tool for the right job. Um, some of them are there so you could do fire damage if you have no other way to do fire damage right. if you're fighting right. a troll, or acid damage if you need to do acid damage. Uh, well, and I think in worlds they're, before they're all, cantrips, yeah. that mattered more. Now... Mm-hmm. If, if you don't have a if some one of you doesn't have a cantrip that deals fire, you may not have, you know, alchemist fire either is the reality of it. Right. Because that doesn't come in a pack. Um, I, I think players right. now don't use this, which is really interesting compared to third edition where you had Tanglefoot bags getting used at lots of different levels. And you mm-hmm. had uh, alchemist fire being used more because it was a little more potent. 
now it's really easy for it to fall out of favor mechanically, right? It, it scales out almost even at level one, really, compared to when, when you have, you know, D10 fire damage via cantrip possible, you, you just don't see people flinging alchemist fire. Which I, yeah. I bemoan I mean, a bit. Ball I mean, bearings. it's not the end of the world, but... <laughs> ball bearings, yeah, right. caltrips, right? Ball bearings. Even the grease like, spell is toned down. Like, knocking that kind something, of thing is... Knocking something prone... Knocking something prone can be a huge, mm -hmm. huge thing. And this lets you at any level take an action that fills up a 10-foot square. And anything in it has to succeed on a DC 10 saving throw or fall prone. You could knock a dragon prone with a set of ball bearings at 20th level. Right? And then everyone just wails yeah. the... It is a DC tender saving the, throw, however. Right. <laughs> right. But, I mean, a, a huge creature doesn't have a lot of dexterity some of the time. Um, so that could be a tough... Legendary resistance. A tough save. <laughs> now, yeah, right, exactly. I'm using a legendary resistance to make a save against ball bearings. That would be hilarious. Um, now, if that. you're a rogue, right, you could do that as a bonus action to interact with an object. That's true. Uh, so, I think... So, yeah. So there, there's all these things that, as we've been talking about over and over and over again, right? We have all this equipment that means something in one sense. It means, do, does my character have the right thing for the job? Do they need it? Does it allow me to access other abilities like thieves' tools? Can you pick a lock without thieves' tools? Can you search for traps without thieves' tools or disarm trap without thieves' tools? Right. No, no, but probably. maybe, but but, but yes. it's complicated when you read the rules because maybe it's an arcana check for this trap, and maybe right. <laughs> or I have a hairpin that that works right, uh, and and so it's. But there's also like story. We're we're not even getting into magic items, by the way. This is right. just like normal equipment. Yeah. And uh, the the last thing to talk about is expenses because I think mm -hmm. this is important enough to, to mention, um, right? They talk about the your lifestyle and mm -hmm. what you would pay to upkeep a lifestyle. And I highly doubt that this gets used a lot in games. Mm -hmm. But it's a good shorthand for saying how your character or your party more likely decides to present themselves. Yeah. It's a small uh it's a small thing to take 10 gold pieces a day to be an aristocrat or four to be wealthy. And by what third level you could probably afford this. Um but it that can bring story into the mechanics by saying, well, since you have a wealthy lifestyle, when you're down in the gutters trying to get information out of you know, members of the beggars guild, you're less likely to get that information because mm -hmm. you chose to do this, as opposed to if you're trying to get into the masquerade party and you're maintaining a wealthy lifestyle, you might have a bonus or automatically be able to yeah. get in because you are the right kind of person to be at this party. Well, and I feel like maybe this should be an optional rule just because it's so often overlooked. And so making it an optional rule would allow it to just be taken off the table when it's not needed and added when it should be. 
Um, and then really highlight it would be my, my general thinking around this. Yeah. All right. Did you have any other thoughts on equipment? We sort of skipped. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, a lot I, of things at the end. I think the trinkets are a really clever thing. It just fades into the background because there are already a number of things that you're doing at level one to sort of define your characters. But, but I, I do really like that addition to the game. Um, I think it's, it's a fun hook that kind of at the, towards the end of character creation, right? You, you roll on this table and go, Oh, Hey, I have this weird thing and maybe I want to use that. I think trinkets come into play more in my games than mm. the adventuring packs do yeah. because it is the last thing you do. And it's, it's so odd that mm -hmm. it tends to stick in people's minds. Um, yeah. If you made everything in the bag, a trinket, uh, <laughs> right. Your rope and your grappling hook and your crowbar are mm. actually just trinkets. Uh, it'd probably get more use. Awesome. Well, that is chapter five. And next time, barring a release from 1D&D, we will probably be looking at chapter six, which are the customization options such as multiclassing and feats. Mm -hmm. And to close, we would like to thank our patrons who have rushed forth to keep the lights on here. Um, you can become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash mastering dungeons and we would like to thank our master of dungeons supporters and give this special shout out to our master of realms and master of the multiverse patrons uh, if you are one of these we're going to give you a shout out if you would like to have your name changed or put in a business instead or just be omitted from this, these mentions please just let us know and we will do so but our Master of the Realm, John Steel Skelton, and Master of the Multiverse, Craig Bailey, John Carney, Darren Chandler, Robin Dermay, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Eric Mengi, Nanakra, Joe Tyler, and Graham Ward. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you. Yeah, hugely appreciate uh, it. And it is, uh, this support has really uh, made us feel great because there was a lot of trepidation about the changes we were making with the show and whether they would be desired by listeners. And so it, it's meant a lot and your kind words have meant a lot to us. And it's propelled us to do a lot of work on our end too to, to make the show better. So thank you for encouraging that. Yep. And even if you can't support the show via Patreon, you know, we, we, Thank you for listening, and you can subscribe to our various things if you leave a review, especially on like Apple Podcasts or some of the bigger platforms. It helps our show gain visibility, and so we thank you if you would do that as well. So, Teos, where can people follow you specifically and your work on social media? Ooh, you can find me at alphastream.org. From there, I blog, and you can reach all the YouTubes and other efforts. I'm on Twitter at alphastream. Where can we find you, Sean? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. You can follow the podcast's Twitter at MasteringDND. You can join our community and ask questions on Patreon. And you can also follow us and leave comments on the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel, which does the cool trick of splitting up our news segment and our design segment into two different shows. So you can 
catch each one individually. Yes, one plus one does in fact equal two. So Teos, now that we've finished recording, what are we going to do now? Ooh, I'm going to use my rope to climb and my grappling hook to climb up the back of this beast. And then going to shove my alchemist fire in his mouth and it's going to explode from the inside. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to do it without having the need to buy all of those things. 